All right. Good morning. Open your Bibles up to the book of Zephaniah. You have the Old Testament prophets, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and then Zephaniah. Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Last week we were ministering out of the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however it's pronounced, and ministering on how that the just shall live by faith. We come now to another minor prophet, it's only three chapters long, which is the book of Zephaniah. And a little bit of background before we get into the main purpose for which the book was written. Zephaniah was raised up by God to assist King Josiah. If you remember, Josiah was the young boy that was, uh, took over the royal line after his father was assassinated. And he brought about the second great revival that occurred in the latter days of Judah. Started out with Hezekiah, then came Hezekiah's son to turn things back the other direction. After he died, his son took over, was assassinated by the people of Judah, and then came, then came Josiah. So the message of Zephaniah basically revealed that it was too late for Judah to be spared the judgment that her family, the northern kingdom of Israel, had uh, gone through, that she likewise was going to face the same. But there were some in Judah at that time that God would spare. There was a remnant that he was going to spare. So it goes back to the time period of Josiah, which is about 635, just not too long before they are overcome by the kingdom of Babylon. So to understand Zephaniah, at that time you had two other prophets ministering with him. We had Habakkuk, and then we also had Jeremiah. And basically, the, as I shared with you already, the the history behind it was that after Hezekiah died, Manasseh, his son, took over. And if you look over to 2 Kings 21, Manasseh was the worst king that Judah ever had. Now, he's not the worst king that Israel ever had. Remember, we talked about Amos and or uh, Ahab, brother, Jezebel, very wicked king and queen. But we're talking now about Judah. And in 2 Kings 21, we're told that Manasseh, who he reigned for 55 years, and everything that Hezekiah had established as a, a good king, Manasseh totally destroyed it. So if we were living in that time frame, we would find that in Judah there was extreme corruption that was occurring. Let's read a few verses in 2 Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. He built up again the high places which Hezekiah's father destroyed. He reared up altars for Baal, made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel, worshiped all the host of heaven, served them, built altars, in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said in Jerusalem, I'll put my name. I mean, Solomon's temple 
he actually began to build temples to the false gods right in that temple and in the court. He built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, made his sons to pass through the fire, observed times enchanted, used enchantments, dealt with familiar spirits and wizards, so he was heavily involved in the occult. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He set a graven image of of the grove which he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and Solomon his son, this is the house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, put my name forever. So he began to start putting up uh, tree worship in the house of the Lord. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and to according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded. But they hearkened not. God said, if you'll serve me and obey me, you'll not lose this land. But they didn't hearken. And to make a long story short, because he was extremely wicked, we're told here in verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, and besides his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin, and doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, and his sin that he sinned, are, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? He slept with his father and was buried in the garden of his own house. And in Amon, his son, reigned in his steed. Amon was 22 years old. When he began to reign, he reigned two years and we're told he did that which was evil. And in verse 21, he walked in all the ways of his father and served the idols that his father served and worshipped. And he forsook the Lord God of his fathers and walked not in the ways of the Lord. And the servants of Amon conspired against him and slew the king in his own house. So he was assassinated and put to death. Then came Josiah, chapter 22, who was eight years old when he began to reign, and he did that, of course, which was right in the sight of the Lord. So we've got this royal line going through, but Manasseh was the most wicked of all the kings of Judah, and Josiah was the most godly of all the kings of Judah. So Judah went from one extreme to the other extreme, but even though they went from one extreme to the other extreme, and they're under a great revival, and this is when Zephaniah is ministering, Zephaniah is ministering after Josiah has brought forth a great revival in the land. It wasn't enough. All it did was delay the judgment of God. All it did was bring about repentance for a remnant of the people. But the majority of the people still had it in their heart to want to follow the false religion and the sinful ways that had been brought in by Manasseh. In chapter 30, chapter 23 and verse 26, where we're reading here about Josiah, it says, for example, the Lord turned not, well, let me back up a little bit, see if it picks up. Uh, verse 24. He says here in verse 24, Moreover, the workers of familiar spirits, 23 says Josiah was ruling, he was 18 years old here, 
And he went through and the, the wizards, the images, the idols, all the abominations that were in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem did Josiah put away that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book of the law that Hilkiah the priest had found it in the house of the Lord. And like unto him there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses neither after him arose there any like him. He was almost like another David. Notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah because of all of the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. And he said, I will remove Judah out of my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house which I said my name shall be there, God said, in essence, even though Josiah has greatly turned this country around as a nation, Judah, they will not be spared. So when you come to Zephaniah, that's the historical background of what is there. When you come then to Hezekiah, the theme then that Hezekiah is bringing forth in this book, or not Hezekiah, Zephaniah, the theme that he's bringing forth is the day of the Lord. So go back over to the book of Zephaniah again. What he brings forth is that judgment is going to come upon Judah. It cannot be reversed. A remnant will be able to be saved, but it's not something that can be stopped. If you look at Zephaniah 1, for example, it says the word of the Lord came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of gives his family, in the days of the uh, king of Judah, which is Josiah, and I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man, beast. I will consume the fowls of heaven, the fish of the sea, the stumbling blocks of the wicked. I will cut off from them the land, saith the Lord, and stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. And he goes on and expresses that over and over again in this first chapter in judgment to Judah. And then if you look over to verse 14, he emphasizes this as the day of the Lord. Thirteen times in the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah's theme is the day of the Lord. It's here, for example, where verse 14 says, The great day of the Lord is near, it is near, and it hasteneth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty men shall cry bitterly. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of distress, a day of wasteness, desolation, darkness, gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet, Alarm against the fenced cities and the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they've sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh is dung. Neither their silver or their gold will be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy for he shall make even a greedy riddance of them all that dwelleth in the land. Now he's talking about partly 
the judgment that was going to come upon them in regard to the invasion of Babylon, which shortly happens historically. Babylon overcomes and conquers them, as, as well as many other nations that are surrounding them. Chapter 2, he goes on and talks about uh, different countries other than Judah. Verse 4, he says, Gaza shall be forsaken, Ashkelon a desolation, Ashdod at noonday, and Eklon shall be rooted up. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of uh, Kermathites, and the word is against thee, O Canaan, the land of Philistines. So he mentions here several different nations and also says that they likewise are going to suffer God's wrath, which they do, because historically then Babylon comes in, overcomes and conquers them, as well as the nation of Assyria. When we move into the book of Jeremiah and then move on into Daniel and Ezekiel, we'll talk about that more. But the day of the Lord is not just here being emphasized by Zephaniah for the events that historically were there to be occurred. Prophecy has a twofold meaning. Most prophecy can be applied to the current time in which it was spoken, and it can also refer to another time. And when it comes to that, that message, the day of the Lord, that applies not only to the time of Zephaniah, but it is a time that is mentioned throughout the whole Old Testament and right on into the New of a day that is yet to occur, a day that is yet to happen. There's a day coming, and I don't mean just a 24-hour period day, but there's a period of time that is coming, and it could very much come in our, in our time right now. We're called to live as though that day could occur any time, but when it comes... God's going to pour out his wrath upon the whole world and purge out and purify a people that will obey him and will call upon his name and will worship him. And that is what Zephaniah is emphasizing as well as many of the other prophets, but I chose Zephaniah to, to speak about this because he emphasizes that he brings it out at least 13 times in, 13, in three small chapters of the book. The day of the Lord is spoken of a lot. Turn, if you will, like, for example, to some other places, like over in the old book of Obadiah. If we can find it. <laughs> the book of Obadiah speaks about the day of the Lord. Yeah. It's only one page, I know. Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Amos. Right after Amos. In between Amos and... And Jonah. Look at Obadiah, for example, verse 15. Now, we could read a lot of the context here, but I'm not. But just to emphasize, Zephaniah's not the only one that talks about the day of the Lord. If he was, see, Obadiah's way before um, Zephaniah. So it doesn't have to be limited to Babylon, is the point. It is a period of time that is somewhere in the future. Obadiah 15, the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee, and thy reward shall be upon thine own head. Now think about what he said. As you have done, it will be done unto you. If you've lied to people, if you've mistreated people, if you have stolen from people, if you have done things to people that you thought you got away with it because... 
well, heaven didn't crash as soon as you did, and the law didn't find out about it, and you thought you got away with it somehow, but you didn't repent of it. You didn't turn of it. You didn't ask God for forgiveness for it. We're talking about the wicked here. He says, there will be a day that comes, the day of the Lord is near, and it's upon the heathen. And as, it, as they have done unto others, it shall be done unto them. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. When it comes to the day of the Lord, if we're living right, if we're in right relationship with God, it will be a day of rejoicing. It'll be a day of vindication. It will be a day of blessing. But woe unto that person who is arrogant and proud and chooses not to repent and to serve the Lord because the day of the Lord will be a day of great judgment unto them. Go back to the book of Joel, chapter 1. Again, remember, this goes way back now away from Zephaniah. But Joel talks about the day of the Lord. Joel 1 and verse 15. He says, Sanctify a fast, verse 14. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land unto the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. There always is with it a message of repentance. Zephaniah in chapter 2 spoke about how that they had, there was an opportunity for them to repent and turn. Most didn't take it, but a remnant did. Joel talks about it here, but then listen to what he says. Alas, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty, it shall come. It's a day of the Lord that he says, but it's a period of time. And then over to the book of Amos, chapter 5, we can find it again. Amos 5 and verse 18. He says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. I mean, even for some that are professing religious, even professing Christianity, that they want the Lord to come. But remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7, he said, why do you call me, Lord, and you don't do what I say? And they said, Lord, haven't we prophesied in thy name? Haven't we cast out demons in thy name? Haven't we done all kinds of wonderful works in their name? And Jesus said, I don't know who you are. They were doing that in his name, but they weren't doing it in his will. They were doing it to promote their, themselves. But that's another message. But he says, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. And then he gives some description here. It's as if a man did flee from a lion. And so he finally is fast enough and he's tricky enough. He gets away from a lion that's chasing him. And he runs into a bear. It goes from one extreme to the other. Or he went into the house and he leaned his hand upon the wall. You know, he went, man, that bear had claws. And all of a sudden he looks down hearing a rattle and there's a serpent that bites him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? I despise, I hate your feast days. I'll not smell your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and meat offerings, I'm not going to accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Well, he goes on, he talks then about how the, they have brought in religious worship but it's not what he ordained but he talks about the day of the lord 
So the day of the Lord, what's it going to be? Well, it depends on how you're living. If, if you are living right when the Lord appears, it'll be a time of great blessing. This is what Zephaniah speaks about in the third chapter, which he wrote. After pronouncing gloom and destruction upon, upon Judah and the nations around him, then speaking about the whole world, he gives a glimmer of hope to the remnant, the remnant of Israel. In Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 16, actually verse 13, he says, The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity or speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Because God's going to redeem them. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all thine heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgment, he hath cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee, and thou shalt not see evil any more. And in that day it shall be said of Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not thine hand be slack. The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee, he's mighty. He will save thee, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love, he will joy over thee with singing. So, and that's a song that we sing. Obviously, that was not something that was going to occur immediately at that point. And after Babylon comes the other great nations which conquer them. And it really wasn't until 1948 that they became a nation. But they're still living on the edge of destruction at any time with their enemies surrounding them. One day after the day of the Lord, he says, you'll rejoice because the land will be yours and I will be your king. So this great day of the Lord. Well, it started, like I said, Zephaniah emphasizes it, but it's also in Obadiah, it's also in these other prophets and many other that we didn't read. It goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. Historically, the Jews know about the day of the Lord. They understand the day of the Lord. They, they've read the prophets. They know that there's a day that's coming in which God is going to uh, judge the earth and vindicate his people and bring about his Messiah. They just didn't recognize the first advent when he came, so they rejected it, the Messiah when he came, which was Jesus. But if you look over to Exodus chapter 32, this day of the Lord starts way back at the giving of the law under Moses. God said to Moses in Exodus 32 and verse 34, after they have, uh, they're here receiving the commandments. And in verse 33, the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Did you know God has books? He does. The, the book of Revelation talks about how the, the books were open. And out of the books, the righteous were judged. And out of the books, the unrighteous were judged. And those that were righteous, based upon what was in the books, were given rewards and blessings based upon what was in those books. But those that were not found in the book, they were cast away into eternal darkness and eternal judgment. There are books. That's what he says. So he says here about the wicked, him that sins against me, I'm going to blot him out of my book. Therefore, now go, lead the people under the place of which I have spoken unto thee, 
Behold, mine angel shall go before thee, but nevertheless in the day, look at that, nevertheless in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. In other words, he said, there's going to be a day that I'm going to take and visit with them. And we're going to sit down and we're going to have a talk. And the books are going to get open. That's the awesome, dreadful day of the Lord. It's not a day to look forward to. It's a day in which people like to ridicule and make fun of. But it is a day that one day is going to occur. It's a period of time. It's a day, if you go back to the book of Zephaniah again and, and look at it, he describes what's going to be occurring during that time. He says, for example, I probably should have told you to put your ribbon there in Zephaniah. It's a time in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. He says, for example, it'll be a day of wrath, a day when God's anger will be brought forth. Now I'm going to raise a question here in a moment. And that is, how can a God of love be a God of anger? How can a God of love be a God of wrath? And I think you'll find that when I talk about it, you'll understand it very easily. But he says, it'll be a day of wrath. It'll be a day of, of trouble. You know what a day of trouble is? Just, I mean, we go through days. He, the next thing he says here, it'll be a day of trouble and distress. Stressful day. You ever have any stressful days? I mean, we have days when little things get under our skin. Little things cause stress. I'm looking back at my wife. We had our new plumbing put in our home last week. If you know anything about plumbing, especially when you have well water, there's all kinds of crud, dirt, rust, everything else in the line. So when the new lines got put in, it went around and it took out one sink upstairs, which is old, and I knew it was getting bad. And some others, I had to go around, flush clean everything out. But it did something to the washing machine to whereby it doesn't work right now because probably some dirt and crap got into it. And now it doesn't produce the water fast enough in that time period. I'm just guessing. But, you know, when you're trying to get laundry done and you can't get it done because the thing doesn't work. And we could add to it other things that occur. It can be a stressful situation. I had a stressful situation at school in recent weeks where I'm trying to teach a class, and the people don't want to pay any attention to me. They don't turn in their homework. They don't show up for tests. And yet, you know, you want to pass them. They keep on coming. You want to say, why don't you just drop it and get out of here? I got one student that hadn't been around for like five weeks, and he shows up. He's five weeks behind. I mean, am I supposed to, I'll ask dullness, am I supposed to say, oh, Good to see you back. Here, let me give you all the things you should have done for five weeks. And by the way, you need to take, make up two tests. You need to go ahead and do that. It's a lot of work, isn't it? To have to grade papers of people that have been procrastinating for five weeks. So I said, no. Not my problem, you know? I mean, they all got their reasons, you know? Uh, it, it goes all the way from, you know... My grandmother died and I had to go to a funeral and my father had to, he went to the hospital and he had to have a, a bypass and my mother has cancer and I had to take her to the hospital. It goes all the way down to, you know, the dog died and we had a special funeral for it. Every, about every excuse you can think about. But it's stressful when, when you, you know, these are things that are stressful. We live in a softy environment in America. I mean, if you let little stuff like that stress you out, 
boy, is the day of the Lord going to be a day you don't want to be around for? He says it's a day of wasteness and desolation, wasteness. I mean, I get the picture there of like some of the rains that were going through Texas recently and South Carolina. And you looked at the waste, the automobiles, the homes, the mobile homes, roads being ripped up and torn, washed away. Everything that people worked for and earned their whole life just became garbage, just became uh, totally destroyed right in front of them. It's a day of darkness and gloominess, clouds and thick darkness. You know, when you look out, you can see on the horizon the blackness and the thunder and the lightning that's coming. And you head for shelter to get out of it because of the destruction that comes with the wind and the rain, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, and so forth. He says, verse 16, it's the day of the trumpet and the alarm. Not just the sirens going off to warn you there's a tornado coming. But these are the trumpets and these are the alarms that there is an army that is coming. In another place, Zephaniah talks about the Lord of hosts. He's a general. He's a leader. He's going to come with his army, supernatural army. There's no army that can stand against him. We haven't lived during a time of war. But I've seen pictures of it. It's not fun. You ever watch, have you ever seen any movies, literal pictures of the Civil War, for example? It's not fun to look at arms that are just stacked up in a pile. Arms, legs, you look at tents that have bloody tables all around. Men have been blown to pieces by cannonballs. And all they can do is just with a hacksaw, set them down, put a stick or cloth in their mouth, give them some morphine, and start cutting off their limbs, trying to sew them up. My wife and I happened to watch a show here recently on Holocaust. Again, the same thing. These Jewish people were being told that they were going to be relocated to a nice place, had a nice place for them to go, and so they put them in cattle cars. And then as they got off the cattle cars, they were deceived. They were spoken to with words of comfort and words of, oh, things are going to be so much better for you, and on and on. And they were told, now, before we take you to your new home, we want to make sure that you get a shower and get all cleaned up and we can give you new clothes. And when they went into that shower, they were gassed and they were killed. And all you saw was piles of bodies and the smoke from burning bodies that was occurring. War is no fun. He's saying here that when the Lord comes, it's going to be the Lord of hosts. It's going to be a day of the trumpet and the alarm against the fenced cities and the high towers. In other words, those, those places where they think they've got defense, they're going to be nothing when it comes to the Lord. I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men. They're not going to be able to see any way of escape, any way out of this mouth. It's just going to be uh, the kind of situation whereby they can't find anything, any way of escape. And some of them are going to try to commit suicide just to get out of it. And God's not going to allow that to happen. Today, sometimes it happens. I mean, one of the the more heartbreaking things you can see is on 9-11. When those two jets, two planes flew into the towers... And they're smoldering, they're smoking, they're burning. And people know they're going to die. And rather than go through the torture of being burned up to death, some of them actually started jumping from very high up in the air. 
photographs of it. That kind of stuff makes you weep. But what, he's, what God is saying here is that the day of the Lord is coming and I'm going to deal with every human being that has not been obedient to me and that has not followed my ways, I'm going to judge them. That is what the day of the Lord is all about. It's a day of punishment. And it's a day of justice and wrath. It's a day in which, well, it's not going to be just 24 hours, but it's going to be a day that this world has never experienced yet. The book of Revelation talks about it. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not keeping this up. The day of, uh, book of Revelation talks about it as being a day of 21 judgments that are poured out. It's described in the book of Revelation as the, the loosening of seven seals and the pouring forth of seven vials and the uh, trumpet alarm and sound of seven, 21. And it lasts over a period of seven years. In verse 18, when he talks about this, he says, their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. And he will make a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Not just the land of Judah, but all the land, the whole earth. He'll make a speedy riddance of all those that have chose to follow their own ways rather than to follow the Lord. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11. Let me give you a few more scriptures here that depict this day. I want to make that impression in your heart. Because when you're tempted to follow the world and its ways, and they're contrary to God's word, and you know that, you have a choice that is set before you. You could choose to follow the world and its ways and do what it says is right, but in your heart you know it's not. Don't think for one moment that as they pursue and follow that course of action and nothing happens, that they somehow got away with it. In the Psalms, through the Psalm 73 or 78, there was a righteous man that was crying out to the Lord about how the, the, the wicked were living as it appeared like nothing was going wrong in their life. And God basically said to him, they're living on thin ice. One day the ice is going to break. And one day they're instantly going to be brought into terror. Well, that day is prophesied that it's going to happen. In Isaiah chapter 2, Listen to what the things here is said about the day of the Lord. Now we're talking about Isaiah. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And in many people shall go and say, Come, let us go up into the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now he's talking here about something that's future. And in verse 11, he speaks directly about how that there's going to be the day of the Lord that comes. And he's going to single out especially the arrogant, the proud, and the haughty. The day of the Lord, verse 11, the lofty looks of man. Well, let's start at another place here. Um, we can start at verse 12. The day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud 
and lofty, and upon every one that is lifted up he shall be brought low. And all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and all the oaks of Bashan, they're all going to be judged. He's talking about Bashan was an area that was, I believe, south of the, of the Jordan River. And it was an area of prosperity and wealth. He says it's going to be brought low. And the cedars of Lebanon refers to strength and power and so forth. Well, he says all of that's going to be brought to nothing. Upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills are lifted up, upon every high tower and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the pleasant pictures. He's saying it doesn't matter about all the merchants, wealth that comes in, doesn't matter about all the art, doesn't matter about all the money, it doesn't matter about all the things that people have spent their lifetimes trying to uh, attain to, and they're arrogant and proud because of it, because they think they're rich. I mean, people that have money and seem to have a lot of things, they have an attitude whereby they look down on others. Have you ever felt like people look down on you for something? I mean, did they look down on you because maybe you didn't have that college degree? I mean, I've had people, for example, that attained unto a bachelor's or a master's or doctors, and they may look at me or my wife and say, you know, well, we have a four-year degree. You know, they're implying that all you have is a two-year degree. I don't care if you got, it doesn't matter to God, but that's what their attitude is. Or they think they're hot stuff because, you know, uh, they've been educated at a particular college uh, that's Ivy League or maybe some big university. And after all, all you did was go to some community school. So that makes them better. Or they look in the mirror and they think about how beautiful and handsome or and so forth that they are, and then they look at you and you go, oh, man, you're bald and fat, you know. I mean, you, uh, you couldn't have any intelligence, like, you're, like your mind and your brain is just kind of oozing in, in grease and fat, and it doesn't function and work right, so somehow you're stupid. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a lot of ways that people are arrogant, and they look at you and they, they judge you based upon your appearance, based upon your wealth and money, based upon your knowledge, and they put you down. They treat you like you're some kind of a lower-class citizen. Well, one day on the day of the Lord, God's going to come, and all those people that have mistreated you for whatever reason because they are so high and mighty, they're going to be call, crawling, <laughs> calling for the rocks to fall upon them to hide them from the wrath of God. It's a day when God chooses to visit that you better be in the right relationship with the Lord. You don't want to be in a wrong relationship because it's going to be something that no man will go through. Verse 17, the loftiness of men shall be bowed down. The haughtiness of men shall be made low. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. They'll go into the holes of the rocks, verse 19, and into the caves of the earth for the fear of the Lord, for the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake terribly the earth. There won't be any tornado shelters. There won't be any nuclear shelters. There won't be any places that they'll be able to go to escape the fiery wrath of the Lord. But believe, believe me, they're going to be looking for some kind of deliverance and help because it's going to be a great day of terror. And that day a man shall cast his idols of silver, his idols of gold, which he's made each one of them for himself to worship to the moles and the bats, the little statues of 
whatever they call a merry or whatever that they put in their yard or they put on their dashes for some kind of protection or help, they're going to come to a realization that that picture that they thought was Jesus is really not Jesus. They're not going to get any help from that fake Jesus picture or a lot of other religious trinkets that they've turned to and looked upon. They're going to say, that's not doing me any good because it's going to be a day in which God's wrath is going to be upon them and and judging them. There won't be any way out. They're, They're silver, they're gold, or anything else. Isaiah 13 describes it. How many ladies in here have had children? Oh, yeah. It's one thing us men have been blessed not to have to go through. I remember my first one being born, which happens to be over there to the right. My wife, blessed her heart, was going through a lot of difficulty. Having the first child, she looked at me and said, if you ever do this to me again, six more times I got to do it. <laughs> they came easier, thank goodness. I don't know if, if she would have been able to handle it. I know I wouldn't have. They came easier. But you know what it's like when a woman goes through travail and having a baby? They do. Well, he describes it here in Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 6, talking about the day of the Lord. He says, Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travails. They shall be amazed at one another. Their faces shall be as flames. They're going to be afraid and red. Their Their faces are going to show forth great fear. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners off of it. Then goes on, talks about the heavens will be judged as well. And in verse 11, I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Why does he keep talking about the proud? Because it's the arrogant and the proud that when they hear these things now, they have an attitude to whereby they disregard it and continue to pursue and follow after their own ways. Well, let me raise a question and answer it, and I'll let you go home. The question is this, how can a God of love do all this? You can see what I've written down here. We haven't experienced the effects of war, the civil war, the Holocaust, the body parts, rape, torture, cruelty. Just look at some of the wounded warriors that have come back from Iraq and Iran and other places. I mean, they they just simply drove over somewhere on a road and a bomb went off and blew their legs off or blew their arms off. Life-changing situations. So how can a God of love do this? This is God coming forth. God is the general. God is the ruler. How can a God of love do this? Because God is not only a God of love, but he's a God of wrath. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32. We're told here very clearly that God is not ashamed of who he is. And neither should we if we understand it right. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39, he speaks of himself here. This is his holiness. 
When we talk about God's holiness, we're talking about how that he's the opposite of us. We as individuals, and I'm not saying it's right, but we as individuals, we lie. We as individuals have stolen things. We as individuals have falsely judged people. We as individuals have criticized people. We as individuals have gotten angry unrighteously and wrongly. We have individuals have done all kinds of things wrong in our life, but God has never done one of those things. He's holy. He's just the opposite of us. We are unholy. We are sinful. He is not. So his holiness, in his holiness, he is perfect. I mean, have you ever had people say to you, for example, who do you think you are to judge me? People that live in glass houses don't throw stones. Who are you to set yourself against me? You're no better than, than me. You're nothing but a hypocrite. God's not a hypocrite. God is totally other than what we are, and God created us to be like what he is. And because we have chosen not to be like what he is, then God has been very long-suffering and merciful, waiting on us to repent and turn and get help to whereby we can be. But if we're proud and arrogant, feeling that we can do whatever we want to do and it doesn't matter... There's a place where God says that isn't going to work. And his justice comes forth. Deuteronomy chapter 32, is taught, he describes himself here. Listen to it. He says, see now that I, even, even I, am he. There's no God with me. He doesn't have to answer to anybody. He's sovereign. He doesn't have to answer no to another God. He doesn't have to make sacrifice to another God. He doesn't have to appeal to mercy to another God. He's the God of gods. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God with me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. God, can, God is sovereign, and he can do anything he wants. Is there any that can deliver out of my hand? No, because none are greater than God. If I lift up my hand to heaven and say, or he says, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword, if I sharpen my shiny sword, and mine hand takes hold on judgment, then I will render vengeance to mine enemies, and I will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with the blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives of the beginning of the revengers upon the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he's going to avenge the blood of his servants, but he will render vengeance to his adversaries and be merciful unto his land and unto his people. In other words, his wrath is his vindication of those that have worked against his people. Those that have sinned against you and I. Now we have obviously sinned against others, but we've received forgiveness for it. But there are others that have sinned against us and they have chosen not to repent of it. They go on in their arrogant ways. They've hurt and harmed the righteous. And God has said to us, don't you take vengeance unto yourself. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Because he can do it righteously, we can't. So the person that really lives what is said there and chooses not to retaliate and not to take vengeance, but commits that unto the Lord, God says with a promise, one day the day of the Lord is coming. And I'm going to make all those wrongs right. It's not a flaw in his character. He's holy. He hates sin. If he were indifferent to sin, then that would be a flaw. 
I mean, what would you think, for example, if murder was going about occurring and happening and he just sat back and didn't do anything about it? He just let it go. He just came up with an excuse. Well, I don't know. The person they killed really wasn't that per- great of a person anyways. <laughs> you know? He was a drug addict and he was worthless, so no loss. Or maybe a woman gets raped and, and God just, you know, doesn't have to do anything about it. He just kind of sits back and says, well, she should not have worn those tight pants. Shouldn't have worn such a tight blouse. I mean, she's asking for it by the way that she looked. Shouldn't have been painted up with makeup. I mean, what do you expect? Or maybe it was stealing, for example. Some couple people go in and they rob a bank. And God just doesn't do anything about it. Or we just say the police force doesn't do anything about it. They don't do anything about it. And the attitude is, you know, well... They were hard up. I mean, they had a lot of bills to pay. I mean, the woman was going to have a baby. You know what I'm saying? And, and uh, most of the people in the bank, they're rich anyways. They can afford it. So what's wrong with it being a little bit of a Robin Hood? Or a judge that just lets criminals go free of punishment. We got one in the White House. It's getting pretty bad. I mean, get mad all you want. But he's recently made announcement of uh, several hundred, I believe, if not thousand of convicted drug dealers that they're going to let go. Well, why now? Because they're going to be legalizing marijuana before he leaves office. So now it's, it's legal, so all those guys can be let go. Do you as an individual, think about this for a minute. Do you condone things like that? Do you condone stealing? For example, let's say that you go to work and you come home, and when you go to open the door when you come home, you notice the door is kind of cracked open. You walk in. And everything has just been turned inside out. And you have all different kinds of things stolen, taken away from you. Does that upset you? Does that, what do, what do you want? Do you get a hold of the police? You say, hey, I've been robbed. What do you want the police to do? Well, you want the police to catch them. You want the police to deal with them, to take and put them in court, and if necessary, put them in jail when they're found guilty. Don't you want that done? Don't you? Sure you do. Nothing wrong with that. You want it done. It's not, it's not that that is wrong. God just says, don't you take care of it. I'll take care of it. It needs to be dealt with. Or lying, for example. I mean, let's say that you, you want to buy a boat. So you save up, you buy a boat, and that boat costs, let's say, $30,000. You buy it used from somebody, and the person says, hey, there isn't a single thing wrong with it. Nothing. You put it out in the lake and get going, all of a sudden, you know, your wife's screaming, there's water coming in from a certain area of the boat. And you looked it over, you didn't see anything, but it was patched. Great big crack, great big hole. You're out in the middle of the lake, it's sinking. I mean, doesn't that get you upset? It's less than that. You can be driving down the road and somebody cuts you off in traffic. And anytime anybody sins against you in some way, That makes you upset. You want to deal with it. Well, don't you think God does? Do you think God enjoys crimes occurring and taking place? No. And so in his righteous anger, he wants to deal with it. I've got some things written down here. I wrote them down as I could think about it. Does crime make you angry? Think about the destruction in Ferguson that occurred, what, about a year ago now? 
Did you think that was really cool to watch people go about and destroy the businesses of other people? To run into businesses and loot and steal and set those things on fire? Did you get a kick out of watching police cars being turned over? Did you get, did you get a kick out of people uh, that were trying to keep the law going and they were being thrown at a Molotov cocktails and other things? You think that's something enjoyable? Does stuff, does stuff like that make you upset and angry in the sense that it's a righteous thing and you say, this is ridiculous that these people do this. It upsets you. Why do you think it'd be any different with God? Do you think God enjoys that kind of thing? You think God sits up there and looks down at that and says, oh man, that's really cool? It's not. And so what God is saying is, I'm long-suffering, and I am patient, and I'm willing to endure that to give you a time to repent. I'll even provide the means to whereby you can turn to the sacrifice that I provided, and you can be restored back unto me. He even provides that. But he says, there's a day coming when there's a line in the sand and when that day comes and I get up off my throne and I come down there, I'm going to straighten out every single one of you that thought you got away with something and you're going to find that you're going to come under my judging hand. That's what the day of the Lord is all about. I think I'll close. I got Revelation 19, Luke 12, 46 up there and some others. But turn to 2 Peter 3, and I think I'll close with this. I think you got the point. What Zephaniah was saying was, the day of the Lord is at hand, and it was carried out in regard to the coming of Babylon. But the way that the day of the Lord is presented, and I didn't look at all, nearly all the scriptures we could have looked at, that it started back in Moses' day. And it goes through the prophets to whereby they talk about the day of the Lord. And they're not talking about Babylon. They're talking about a day when God looks down at his creation. And he wrote the law upon their hearts of all men. We were created in the image of God. Therefore there's no excuse. And every man who has chosen to resist what God has said. And to follow after their own way. God is going to say, you know, I didn't create my world for people like you to destroy. I'm going to come in as a big policeman, a big army, army general. I'm going to remove from off my land all those people that have chosen to despise and reject my ways. Right now, he's not doing it because he's a loving God. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's long-suffering, he's loving. But he is not ashamed of the fact that he's righteous and holy. And one day he's going to vindicate everything that he has said, and he's going to vindicate all those that have stood by it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, I remember preaching a sermon like this one time years ago. In fact, it was the first building of Finley we ever came to. man came up to me afterwards. He goes, wow, I've never heard anything on the wrath of God. I thought preachers ought to preach it a lot more than they do. Instead of, like one man recently I was listening to, God wants to bless you so much. If you don't have the faith for it, don't worry about it. He's got you covered. He'll bless you. He'll give you his faith. It's all positive, positive, positive. And as he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 10, 
he quoted something to whereby after Israel did something, then it went on to be pie in the sky. And I thought, oh my gosh, you stopped reading, didn't you? Because <laughs> it wasn't, Assyria and Babylon wasn't pie in the sky. But as long as he can draw the crowds and money in, I guess that's all matter. Second Peter 3. I'm going to read this and close. This epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles, and the Lord. We could talk about the apostles talking about the day of the Lord and Jesus talking about the day of the Lord and the prophets talking about the day of the Lord. They all did. Knowing this first, that there will come in the last days scoffers who will walk after their own lusts. They're going to ridicule you and laugh at you and say this is never going to happen after all. We evolved from monkeys. There's no God. They're going to say, well, where's the promise of his coming? Where, where's this? We, you know, I went and, went and saw a movie on the apocalypse, so things aren't going to happen like what you are. And I went and saw a movie on the Da Vinci Code. None of this stuff's going to happen like what you're talking about. Where is this promise coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. People live and die and live and die and live and die and live and die and the day of the Lord still hasn't happened. For this they are willingly ignorant of. By the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, it perished, but the heavens and earth which now are by the same word is kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. God is saying the current world, we can't look at the earth and use it to try to uh, find creation. What we find is the flood. That's what he's talking about here. And, and that's found all over the place, you know. But what he says here that the earth has not gone through that because it's being reserved for a day of judgment. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise. He's talking about the promise of vindication, the promise whereby he's going to uh, deal with the unrighteous for the way they dealt with the righteous. As He says he's not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. He's not lazy. He's not indifferent. He's not looking at this and coming up with an excuse to not carry forth his judgment. He's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I didn't get into it, but that message is in the book of Zephaniah as well. But the day of the Lord. Peter's talking about it. My gosh, that's way after Zephaniah. It started with Moses, now we see it with Peter. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth and the works thereof will be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in all holy living and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire will be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless, because that can only come by the blood of Jesus. 
and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our brother Paul, and according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you in all of his epistles, in which some things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and stable rest as they do the other scriptures under their own destruction. But, beloved, seeing you know these things, what I talked about this morning, don't be led away. He says, you know these things before, beware, lest you also being led away with the terror of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in knowledge and our Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. There's so much more I could say. But you got the point. That's what Zephaniah was saying unto them. That the day of the Lord is at hand. The remnant repented. But the majority did not. They continued on in their arrogant ways that were accepted by the world. Father, it's good for us to hear every so often about the day of the Lord. It can be said in so many different ways because you've put it in your word in so many different ways. But you've told us to be watchful and on guard because the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And it is a day of holiness. It is a day of righteousness. It is a day of wrath. It is a day when you are going to vindicate the righteous and judge the wicked for their pride and arrogance and unbelief in how that you've told them to live. Let this word be rooted in our heart to whereby when we're tempted to turn away from what you've taught us is right that we can resist that temptation and overcome. Thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.